The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. Well, one of the things that we do sign up for when we become Christians is we sign up to be hated. And this might be small things, such as in my time in Omaha when I was working a secular job. I would get made fun of on occasion for my Christian faith. There's a, a pastor friend of mine who said that he was praying with his family as he was out to dinner with them, and a lady in the booth next to them started to boo out loud, and the lady's wife start or husband started to laugh out loud. Now that's a small thing, but again, it's just a reminder of the hostile world that we do live in. This world is hostile towards. Christians, uh, maybe you have experienced a greater pain at the hands of family members, oh, those whom you love, uh, who speak evil of you and falsely accuse you uh, because of your faith. Uh, Jesus did say that he came to bring a sword where family members would be de- divided within their own household on account of faith in him. But I think the worst kind of hatred against Christians comes when there's much power and authority behind it. And we see that throughout history. Not only throughout history, we also see that in the Scriptures. And this happens when you have somebody within a government that has power and has hatred for Christians. And this is typically the most intense and widespread persecution that occurs. We could think of Pharaoh. Uh, back in Exodus against the Jews and the heavy burdens he put under them. Think of during the time of Daniel where the king, being deceived by his counselors, made a decree to essentially make Daniel and what he was doing illegal. Uh, We could think of King Herod who issued a decree to kill all the children uh, two years and under, all the male children, during Jesus' day because he felt threatened by Jesus, the true king. And then even post-biblical times, we could think of the early church who they were persecuted under Nero as Christians were used as essentially candles uh, being embalmed and lit on fire for his garden parties. Uh, We could think also of Christians who were fed to lions for the entertainment uh, of uh, the people. And even after that, Caesar required everyone to burn a little incense and utter the word, Caesar is Lord. And they even said, you don't even need to mean it. All you have to do is just offer a little incense to Caesar and utter the words, Jesus is Lord, and you will be safe. You won't die. And many Christians refused to do that. And of course, others said, look, what's the big deal? It's really not that big of a deal. Why are you so hard in your convictions? Just offer a little incense and that's it. You don't even need to mean it. Yet Christians were willing to give their lives for the sake of their convictions. And many Christians were killed for refusal to do so. And in the years 54 to 304 AD, there are 10 separate periods of persecutions against Christians at the hand of the government. And in the last 100 years or so, there has been intense persecution of Christians really abroad in China, North Korea, parts of Africa, and uh, the Middle East. Uh, There have been more Christians killed in the last 100 years 
than perhaps the last 19 centuries combined. And I bring all this up because this is what we see going on in our passage today. It's an expression of really the same hatred. And what I want you to see is that what's happening here with Haman rising up against God's people when seeking to annihilate all of them is another example of massive persecution at the hands of the government, but it's, it's deeper than the government. That's what I want you to see. At the heart of this is the enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And we come to see here in the rest of the book of Esther who is going to be triumphant. And this gives us great encouragement to press on and not be fearful when we do see the world rising up in power against God's people. There's nothing new under the sun. And yet we do see who is going to ultimately prevail. So two realities of this world as it pertains to God's people. The the first is preference and the second is persecution. So first preference, and this is the world prefers its own. Don't expect the world to treat us fairly. That's what I want you to see. And we start in 2.21 where we read that Mordecai was sitting in the king's gate. Now this doesn't mean that Mordecai was just lounging around or loitering at a gate that is similar to uh, the gate in our backyard or the gate at a gated community. Rather, the gate was a, a, a building at the entrance of the king's palace, a rather sizable one. And this is where legal business was done, uh, such as commercial trading. And being seated is a technical term for being in one's official capacity. Uh, this is like when a judge is seated on his bench. It's not referring to body posture, but rather someone officially assuming his duty in his office. And so what we see here is that Mordecai was an official in the king's gate involved in handling legal matters. And he is like a federal employee assuming his official duties here. And it's during this that he overhears, or at least somebody makes known to him, a plot to kill the king. See that in verse 21. Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. So two eunuchs, uh, these are uh, servants who have devoted themselves to the king, and these particular eunuchs were the king's guards, so the king uh, was dependent on uh, them to guard his life. Well, they became angry. We don't know why they became angry, but they're angry at the king, and they sought to lay hands on him. And what that means is that they sought to kill him. Well, Mordecai somehow learns of this plot and immediately reports it to Queen Esther, who goes on to tell the king in verse 22. And verse 23 says an investigation ensues. The two eunuchs are found to be guilty, and they are put to death. And verse 23 also says that this is recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Now, the book of the Chronicles is a book that most kings would have, Uh, that recorded important events in the life of the king uh, during his legacy, uh, important decrees, important events. And so the fact that this was recorded means that this is quite an important thing. The king's life was spared, and it was recorded in the king's personal 
book, and the king would know that it was Mordecai uh, who revealed this plot, because verse 22 says that Queen Esther reported this in the name of Mordecai. A lot should be done for him, right? Well, we see that nothing is done for him. Now we're going to see later on that this is providentially ordained by God, that the king's going to remember uh, Mordecai at the precise moment that is going to be most humiliating for Haman. Yet this is an unusual oversight because the Persians were known for recognizing and honoring people. But this is juxtaposed to Haman, who receives a promotion out of nowhere. And what we learn here from Mordecai by way of, of, of application is two things. First, he sought the welfare of the civil society he was living in. This is not his home. He's in exile. And yet he sought the welfare of the civil society he was living in. And this is a carryover of the principle that Jeremiah gave to the exiles when they were under Babylon. Jeremiah told them, seek the welfare of Babylon. Now, obviously this is not Babylon because Persian came over and or came and took over Babylon. Nevertheless, the principle applies. They were to seek the welfare of this city, even though it wasn't their true home. In pagan, and we see uh, Mordecai is an example in this. And so we are also to be invested and seek the welfare of the nation, the town that we live in, even though this is not our ultimate home. And as we do, we keep true, we keep two things in mind. On the one hand, we do want to be invested in the welfare of our earthly sojournings, but on the other hand, we don't want to turn it into something it's not. We don't want to turn it into the heavenly city. Because here we have no lasting city, but we are seeking the city that is to come. Uh, there's been an increasing number of professing Christians in the last few years who have been embracing what's called theonomy, or Christian nationalism, which is distinct but related. And what the idea is, is we need to implement God's old covenant law, or all of the Bible, as the law of the land. Uh, where even uh, you have a civil a government uh, overseeing uh, aspects uh, of worship in order to make civil society Christian. Uh, while we are to seek the welfare or well-being of our civil society, we, we don't want to be uninvolved, uh, we are not to turn it into the heavenly city. If you remember, we have a principle from Jeremiah. We too are exiles. We, too, are not in our homeland, uh, the everlasting city, the heavenly Jerusalem. We're waiting for that city. In the meantime, we are living in Babylon. We're living in a, a pagan world. And Jeremiah says, seek the welfare of the city you live in. But he never told them, turn it into a Jerusalem. That Jerusalem is to come. And so we are to... Seek the welfare here, but not turn this into something it's not. Uh, the second thing we learn from Mordecai is that there is no indication of grumbling or complaining for not being rewarded or recognized. I think that could be our tendency. You know, we, we have a job, perhaps, 
and we get overlooked, uh, we don't get recognized, and we can grumble and complain about it or say, well, well, that's it. I didn't get recognized. I'm no longer seeking the welfare of uh, the company I'm working for. And that's not who we are to be. We, we are to continue to seek the welfare even when we are not recognized. On the same token, if we are in a position to recognize and show appreciation for others, uh, such as you know, we're a uh, management or a business owner, uh, we don't want to do the same thing that the world does. We do want to be gracious and show appreciation and give encouragement uh, for others. Now, Mordecai's unusual lack of recognition is juxtaposed with Haman's promotion in 3.1. It says, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. So we're not even given the reason why Haman was promoted. And the fact that it's juxtaposed to Mordecai here, Mordecai saved the king's life, nothing is done for him. Haman did nothing, and he is honored. And I think Scripture's juxtaposing this here. And this is part of the suffering that Mordecai is undergoing. And we learn that this is the way the world is. The world is going to prefer its own. The world is going to treat us unfairly. The world is not going to recognize us all the time. And indeed, Haman is an enemy. Uh, he is called an Agagite. And as I've been mentioning as we've been going through Esther, don't overlook the genealogies. Uh, when we, I think when we, see, we come across genealogies, our eyes glaze over. Or we want to skip that part in Scripture. The genealogies are there. They're important. It's not just an interesting family tree. Rather, what this is, is this is tracing the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And this is an expression of that here in the book of Esther. Haman is an Agagite. That goes back to the Amalekites where King Agag, who in 1 Samuel 15 was king over the Amalekites. Well, you remember the Amalekites are those who, while Israel was in the wilderness, attacked them. And God said, I'm going to have war with them now because of what they have done. Well, later on in 1 Samuel 15, we see King Saul, son of Kish, commissioned to go out and annihilate the Amalekites. Of course, he failed to do it. Well, here, if you remember from last week, chapter 2, Mordecai is tied to King Saul, to his father Kish. Now we have Haman introduced. He is tied to King Agag. This is revisiting that war between God and his enemies. That is what is going on here. That is what the book of Esther really is about. We see an expression of this enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And this brings us to the second reality of this world towards God's people. And that is persecution. Sometimes the enemy is going to receive power to kill God's people. And this is what we see here. And it begins with Mordecai's refusal to bow down and pay homage to Haman. Now, this is not necessarily an idolatrous thing to bow down and pay homage. Uh, this is a customary thing that you would do 
towards a king to show high honor and respect. We see King David doing it uh, to Saul. And later on, we're going to see Mordecai doing it towards King Ahasuerus. Nevertheless, Mordecai refused to do it here. And the king's servant asked him why he refused, for it was actually commanded by the king. And we see at the end of verse 4 that Mordecai said it is because he was a Jew. Now, I think what he's referring to is the fact that God was at war with the Amalekites and Haman was a part of that line. Therefore, while Mordecai had no problem bowing to King Ahasuerus, which we see later on in Esther, he took issue with bowing to an Amalekite. And these eunuchs go and they ask Haman, uh, this is what Mordecai says, to see if his word would stand, to see if this is would be acceptable to Haman, and of course it was not. It enraged Haman. Verse 5 says he was filled with fury. And that's pretty strong language there. See, unlike Mordecai, Haman was jealous for his own glory and honor and was filled with murder for those who refused to recognize him. Haman was filled with so much fury and rage that killing Mordecai was not good enough. In fact, the way Scripture puts it is that he disdained to only kill Mordecai. He hated to think that he could only kill Mordecai. He wanted to kill all of Mordecai's people. And we see how severe man's pride and murderous jealousy can be. One person refuses to pay homage, and the man wants to commit genocide. And so Haman plots to kill them and begins to execute that plot. First in verse 7, they performed a ritual called purr, or casting lots. Really, this is like rolling dice. Rolling dice, where does it land? And what they were doing is they were rolling dice to see the day on which this plan to annihilate all the Jews would occur. And they did this because they thought that this was an indication of their gods being uh, with them and for them and, and uh, affirmed and confirmed uh, their will. And so they cast the lot and the dice land on the 12th month of the year. Now this would be almost a whole year in advance because as verse 7 says, they did this in the first month. And the dice rolled to indicate that the, the plan would be carried out in the 12th month. So almost a whole year later. But even in this, the providence of God is active. Of course, Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap. But its every decision is from the Lord. What the Lord did here is He gave His people plenty of time to be delivered. So even this shows that the Lord is with them. Then Haman goes to King Ahasuerus to get approval for his evil plot. And he's rather vague. Which indicates that he has evil intentions that he's hiding. And this is a typical maneuver if somebody has evil intentions. It says, ah, there's a certain people, I'm not going to explicitly mention them. I'm not going to name them. It says their laws are different and they do not keep the king's laws. That's true, they have different laws. But actually, during the Persian Empire, this was okay. It was okay to have different laws. There's a level of freedom so long as you did not violate the king's laws. This is why Haman brings up what he does. And he personalizes it to incite the king, if you notice that. They do not keep your law, O king. 
And of course, this is not true other than Mordecai refusing to bow down to Haman. But based on this, Haman says the king cannot tolerate to have them in his kingdom. So Haman suggests in verse 9 that a decree go out to destroy them. And he says he will pay 10,000 talents to the king's treasury for this to occur. Now this does not correspond to $10,000 in our day. Uh, this would correspond to about three-fourths of the entire annual income of the kingdom. Now, I'm not sure how much the United States government gains in, in tax revenue. I know how much they gain from me, but I don't know how much they gain uh, from everybody. But if you can imagine that, you take all the tax revenue and you take three-fourths of that, that's how much this one man says he will give to the king's treasury. We'd have no idea how he's going to get it, where he's getting it from, but this is what it seems like he's bribing the king with. And the amazing thing is the king just goes along with it. He doesn't inquire. He doesn't say, wait a minute. What? what? You want to annihilate a whole people? Why? What's going on here? Give me some more details. He doesn't care. He just immediately gives Haman his signet ring, which contains the special seal of the king. And so any document that had this mark authenticated that this came from the king. This is how people would know that this is from the king. Gives him money and permission to do uh, with these people as he wishes without inquiring really anything else. This shows that he's an unjust and unwise king. He really does not care about justice. He doesn't care about righteousness. He doesn't have wisdom. So there's nothing new under the sun when it comes to governmental leaders. And so authenticated letters with the king's official seal were sent out to every province in their own language. And remember, there's 127 provinces. And so this would be massive genocide. And this decree was, according to verse 13, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month. We see how intense his hatred is by all these words stacked up. He didn't just want to use one word. He wanted to use the word destroy, kill, annihilate. As many words as he could find to get the point across, demonstrating his great hatred. And it is all Jews. It doesn't matter if they're young or old, or women or child. All of them in one single day are to be utterly destroyed. And what's interesting about this is that God decreed that the Amalekites, that young and old, women, children, and even their livestock were to be annihilated. And so we see Satan countering that here. And even this, even though this is about a year away, Haman had these orders delivered hurriedly. He was eager to see his plot sent out. Now, verse 15 says that this threw Susa, the capital, into confusion. And we can imagine this. Not only were the Jews panicked, all of the people were bewildered and alarmed by this. You can imagine this. You have relative peace. 
peace with these people that aren't stirring up any problems. And suddenly there's this decree that says, annihilate them all in one day. And even the citizens who aren't Jews are wondering, what is this about? That would create a lot of instability and uncertainty. Well, if this would happen to this people without warning, what does that mean for us? And so the city, the capital, is thrown into confusion. Meanwhile, king, the king and Haman sit down to drink. They don't care. They don't have a care in the world. They don't care about the people. They relax in luxury and enjoy their celebratory drinking. And I think it's important to keep in mind that this is, while we really love the story of Esther, now this is not a fairy tale. This is a real story. And imagine if the United States government had a decree that all of God's people were to be destroyed in one day, including your precious children. Now it's not hard for Christians in other parts of the world to imagine. But this is exactly what is happening here in Esther. This is the hatred that our enemy has for us. So the question here in Esther becomes, what is going to happen to God's people? Is the enemy going to carry this out? Well, while we do know the rest of the story, we need to remember the realities, the deeper realities underneath the story. Again, this enmity between the two seeds, between God and Satan, is at the center here. Uh, we are reminded of this in verse 10, where it says, So the king took his signet ring from the hand, from his hand, and gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. We were already told who Haman was in verse 1. But here, at this exact juncture, Scripture tells us again who Haman is and adds that he's the enemy of the Jews, to say, this is important to know at this point. See, what happens here is that the enemy of God's people just received great power to kill them. And that does happen in this world that we are living in at times. And according to verse 12, this happened on the 13th day of the first month. Do you know that's a significant day for the Jews? That is the day when they selected the Passover lamb who would be slaughtered for them. And on that day, they are the ones being selected to be slaughtered like the Passover lamb. They are a sheep to be slaughtered. Now, do you think there's any coincidence there? Or do you think that this is the sovereignty of God? Well, of course, this is the sovereignty of God. This is all ordained by God to point to the true and ultimate Jew who would be selected to take the place of his people in being slaughtered for them, and this would come at the hands of an enemy, at the hands of not only a pagan people, but the religious people, the Jews who should be 
for the Messiah. While the Passover lambs were being selected for slaughter, the enemy was putting in putting into place their plan to slaughter the true Passover lamb who would take away the sin of the world. Even casting lots for him while he's dying on the cross. But this occurred in place of his people. His people who should be handed over to the enemy and destroyed on account of their sins. And brothers and sisters, we need to be reminded that we do deserve that fate. We do deserve to be delivered and handed over to the enemy without any deliverance whatsoever. But Christ put on our humanity and took our place to be selected as the Passover lamb who would be slaughtered in our place to take away our sin. That God who loves us, though we were once His enemies, would not spare His only Son for us that we may be delivered from the true enemy, Satan, who is at who is behind this evil plot of Haman's. But in crushing his son, having him take the wrath of God for our sins, it was actually Satan who was being crushed. It was his head who was being crushed, even though Christ's heel was crushed. And what has this done for us? This has removed the power of Satan in our life. The power to accuse us and the power to enslave us has been removed because Christ has removed the penalty and power of our sins by His death. And so we see then who is going to ultimately win. Uh, the world, beloved, is going to hate us. I think we've enjoyed a lot of freedoms here in our country for which we should give much thanks to God. And we should pray that that, that continues. Yet, we know that we live in a hostile world. We should expect the world to mistreat us. We should expect them to dishonor us. We should expect us, them to treat us unfairly as it exalts its own. We should actually be surprised when they treat us with some decency. We should expect it even to persecute us. And while we need to pray for our nation and government that this doesn't happen, yet we cannot rule it out. But remember that there is always a greater spiritual battle going on beneath the surface. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against cosmic powers, the powers of Satan. But we know that the seed of the woman has already conquered and slayed this dragon and crushed the serpent's head. The preferential treatment against us and the persecution of us may flare up, but we remember the story of Esther. We remember the rest of the story even in Scripture that ultimately we will have the victory in our Lord Jesus Christ. And just like with Mordecai, we will be honored at the proper time while all of God's enemies are brought to everlasting shame. And all glory and honor and praise will be our Lord's forever and ever. Amen. Well, let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for this story in Esther because it does remind us 
of what is to come. Even though the enemy rises up and we have the advantage of reading the rest of the story, those during this time did not know how it would turn out. And at times we can forget. We can be caught up in a hostile world against Christians. And while we would want to see uh, kings and uh, those really now in authority uh, to honor you, yet that doesn't happen often. And we can get discouraged by that. But may we remember that at the heart of that is this battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And the, the seed of the woman will prevail. And we who are in Christ are part of that line. And you will honor us. And you will uh, glorify us. And you will bring us safely into your kingdom that has no end. And so may we trust you as we live in this hostile world. May we trust you as uh, we face hardship and persecution and false accusations at the hands of the evil one. Uh, may, we, may you help us to look to Christ and to find our refuge in him. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.